You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben, and today we are in the thick of the playoffs. First round basically over, second round going to kick off today as of recording this on Saturday. What is the date? I don't even know days anymore. Saturday, June 5th, the Bucks and the Nets. Ooh, that's the one I've been waiting for. And we are still, as of right now, waiting for Game 7 between the Clippers and the Mavs. We'll talk about the Clippers and the Mavs and that series in a little bit. But let's start with just where I am after the first round. Because to me, one of the big takeaways that I haven't seen discussed, and for obvious reasons, because they're they're low on the narrative list. I don't know why they're low on the narrative list, but they're low on the narrative list because they have a small market and they have foreign players and things like that. Who knows? I don't even want to get into that. But the Utah Jazz, to me, are the big winners of the first round for a couple of reasons. One, I thought they continued to validate. Now, yes, they're playing the nine seed in Memphis, but the way they looked in the regular season and the way the playoffs look when you watch the other seven series, the Jazz, to me, looked very good. Not only, uh, as we talked about a couple weeks ago um, on our preview podcast with Dave Dufour, not only do they still look like they're in the championship tier, but I think the way they're constructed now, based on the way the league is going, playoff uh, offensive rating, by the way, across the board, still 115 in the league as of recording this. So with the way the game is played, the balance the Jazz have as a team, the three-point shooting, uh, the, the multiple playmakers, um, Gobert on defense, the fact that Mike Conley, I mean, when you when you consider Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, and Gobert, I mean, that's, that's a three all-star team, basically. And, and those teams historically are the types of teams that come in and win a championship when you don't have a top five or top 10 player. If I were handicapping the postseason right now, if I were re-ranking it, the Lakers are out, the Clippers are still there in the West, but looking, I think, looking vulnerable, and maybe we'll get into that today. I mean, that, that could, they could lose Game 7 and just flat out be out. And the other kind of contenders in the West, I mean, Denver is always feisty with the Jokic machine, but lacking Jamal Murray, and they still haven't even got Will Barton back or P.J. Dozier back. There's there's still, uh, you know, running on spare guards. Um you know, I don't know if I would consider them a really dangerous threat to a team of Utah's quality. Phoenix, of course, is a good team, but again, uh, I am not... Now, now, could they beat Utah in a series? I think, sure. Yeah. Just like Dallas could maybe give them a run for their money. But what I'm saying is when I stack up the West now, I see the Jazz as basically a, a clear favorite almost. Is that fair? 
I don't know if I'm drinking Kool-Aid. You guys are are buying what I'm selling here, but because of their position in the West, I think I would make the Jazz my favorite to win the title just because of the mathematical shakedown of only having to play Brooklyn or Milwaukee or I guess technically someone like Philadelphia in the finals once. Whereas the other teams that I'm really excited about, and and next week we'll certainly talk a ton about what goes on in the Brooklyn-Milwaukee series as it unfolds in these next few days. But the Nets and the Bucks now have to play each other right now. So I could say something like, well, maybe the winner of that series is technically going to be my title favorite. But they have to play each other first. So that makes it hard to pick one or the other over the path the Jazz have. And thus, I I kind of feel like one of the big stories to me is that Utah, if you were on the Utah championship bandwagon all season, uh, you have to be feeling pretty good right now. As far as the Nets and the Bucks, I don't feel like I learned too much from the Boston series about the Brooklyn Nets. I actually think Jeff Green not being healthy for this series is bigger than people realize. One one of the things that has um, outperformed my expectations with the Nets this year is just a technical, a tactical choice. Excuse me, where they're playing no centers, they're trying to play no big men, and they're having Jeff Green and Durant, who for most of their careers would kind of be considered wings until the last few seasons, they're having them play together on the court as the bigs, and this is supercharging the offense and trying not to bleed too much on defense, and it's working, by the way. Um, Those guys are amazing offensively with the talent and shooting of the big three alongside Joe Harris. Joe Harris continues to put up huge plus-minus splits because he's like the perfect auxiliary player, a a world-class shooter who can also move, uh, kind of attack closeouts, and basically demands no touches or isolation possessions himself to create tremendous value, an ultimate finisher. And then they put another player on the court who can spread the floor, shoot, attack, have some ball skills, and just try to hold it together on defense. And Green played that role pretty well for them. And I think it's going to be a change, a slight change with... Blake Griffin getting those minutes, Claxton getting those minutes, whoever it may be. We'll see. We'll see how the, sh- the series shakes out. But I just thought the Celtics were kind of a hospital unit. They looked like they had uh, a pseudo G League team out there at times around Jason Tatum or Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart. And it's like that, that team was completely overmatched to really learn anything from me about the Nets. The, the Nets in the games where they had the big three healthy the offense looked just as scintillating as it did uh, against the Celtics. The Bucks, they indeed did look a little tougher than in years past with some of the additions that we talked about on that preview podcast, episode 79. So yeah, uh, I am quite excited for that. I mentioned the LA teams. Now, what's fascinating to me about the Clippers, so the Clippers didn't really have a great defense this year and they have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George now I don't think either of those players are at their defensive peak despite tremendous size and you know still having certain physical advantages over their opponents on both ends of the court I don't think this Kawhi while still a very good defender is at the level of the younger sort of peak Kawhi 
Um, I don't know if the drop-off is that huge just because of some of the things off-ball, but it's it's not the same player that we saw when he was younger. George, he was he was a fantastic wing defender to me when he was in Indiana. And, of course, some of that could be coaching. It could be effort. It could be... Uh, you know, reactivity and quickness when you're younger, motor when you're younger. So he's not the same defender that he was, but he's still a good defender. And so you have this template, you have this Jordan and Pippen Pippen template that you're reactivating from the 90s where you say, okay, our our two best players are quote-unquote wings. Of course, nowadays, you know, both of those guys can play the four in lineups and small ball lineups um, or just the typical skill ball lineups that you see. And we'll have them be our two best offensive players. And we'll also have them kind of drive the defense. We want to put another guy in there in the big position with the Bulls. It could be someone like Horace Grant. It could be Rodman, um, even Luke Longley back then starting games and, and, you know, eating innings with those minutes. He was a big bruising physical center who could add to the kind of defense they wanted to play. And in the Bulls' case, they had a little a little pit bull. They brought off the bench named Randy Brown, who could really get into the ball and guard the ball. Uh, maybe if you're a generation later, think of someone like Lindsey Hunter specializing in coming in and guarding the ball. And the Clippers have someone like that in Pat Beverly. And so, in theory, you look at them and you would think they would be at least a good if not have the potential to be a great defensive team. And it just hasn't shaken out like that. And that's okay because the lineups they've played and the style they've played with the shooting, like just incredible shooting, I believe it's the fourth highest three-point shooting percentage in NBA history. And of course, the volume this year is basically higher than most, most past team seasons ever. So, okay, you have this great, great offense and a kind of passable defense or, or, a, or an okay defense. And... That sounds pretty good, actually, as, as I discussed a couple weeks ago. I kind of liked the Clippers trying to shake down the West, but a few things have happened. First, I think you expect, or at least I did, a little bit more in the playoffs defensively. They don't have to be a great defensive team. To a degree, we saw this with Golden State during their dynasty years, where the adaptability of those players and the concept of switching and sort of um, having four, at least four good defenders on the court and then Curry can hold his own and he can play in the scheme and all that stuff. Like that was very powerful in the playoffs. And so I think the Clippers look like they have a roster where, hey, I would expect a little bit more bite out of the defense in the playoffs. And one of the most amazing things about this first round is they're playing Luka, and Luka Doncic is, and he's like 6'7 barefoot, which is, that's a big wing. That's a big difference. You know, think about James Harden. What's James Harden barefoot? Like 6'4", six, 6'4 six, four, six, four and change, something like that. So when you play that style in the NBA, when you are a point guard or a point guard plus now, where you're the lead initiator as a wing, having that size, being LeBron James-ish, in height. Of course, historically, someone like Magic Johnson was one of the first people we ever saw uh, have this advantage. I thought Penny Hardaway, a decade later, had an advantage like that. It's huge. And so you would then look at the Clippers and say like, okay, but here's where your defensive value comes in, right? Here's where having 
Kawhi and Paul George on your team should help in these kinds of playoff matchups where we know there's more heliocentrism in the league. We know there's this concept of having great lead initiators that you're going to put everybody in pick and roll a bunch and spread the court. Can we slow them down? Luka's not exactly using explosive athleticism to beat people. His athleticism uh, is pretty robust to me. It's it's a lot of neurological stuff, the mapping of the court and decision-making, but also, I mean, of course, tremendous hand-eye coordination, deceleration, just the proprioceptive feel for changing directions and things like that. So, okay, that sounds like it would be perfect for the Clippers, you know, kind of falling into the gauntlet of facing Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Oh, no, apparently not. He has both last year and this year, really, really, I don't want to say completely torched because his overall kind of efficiency hasn't hasn't been through the roof. Um, and some of it is just his shot making, like he's just making incredible shots. And I don't know how consistent that would be from series to series, but he has... Whatever, whatever the level below torched is, <laughs> like he's he's fired them up on some coals. Let's put it that way. He's got a he's got a simmer or perhaps a boil going with the Clippers. So whether you have an elaborate seven step face care routine like I do, or you just keep it simple with some basic soap, shampoo, deodorant, Hawthorne has your grooming needs covered. You take a personalized quiz and they tailor your tastes and needs to give you these really high quality grooming products that don't have sulfates and parabens and other harsh chemicals on your skin, things like that. Uh, It's actually kind of fun. You go online, you take the quiz, And then you get free shipping on your order and on your return. So if you didn't like one of the products, you can retake it. They'll customize and find something that's for you. Head on over to Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne.co and use the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O with the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL. 10% off your first purchase when you head on over today. Of course, this says great things about Doncic, who, I mean, the the sky is the limit for what his career looks like. He's one of the best 22-year-old players we've ever seen in NBA history. But, I mean, still, that's one of my biggest takeaways, which is like, wow, you would think if there were a team that was constructed, at least on paper, especially in the reshuffling of the deck in the last few years and free agency in 2019, uh, in the summer of Kawhi and all that, you would think like, okay, the Clippers would be the team to stifle Kawhi, but they don't have that. More, More so, Patrick Beverly has basically been shelved for the series, like like completely benched because he's too small. He's too small to actually handle playing the point of attack defense against Luka. It's too much of a mismatch. And so when you take away Beverly's defensive value from the Clippers, then you're left with a guy who is a weaker offensive player than someone like Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson's a bigger body. So why wouldn't we just give more minutes to Reggie Jackson? We're going to try to up our minutes on Kawhi. We're going to try to up our minutes on PG. It's the playoffs. We shorten the rotation. We want guys that work. Beverly just doesn't work. So now you go with Jackson. And since you need big bodies, now someone like Terrence Mann, who's had, you know, D 
decent moments defensively against Luka because almost everything Dallas is doing is going through Luka at a historically disproportionate rate. He, he just drives every possession at pick and roll, mismatch hunt, whatever it is. He's at the forefront of it when he's on the court. And so now Terrence Mann can play minutes that matter. Zubac, he, okay, so Luka can attack Zubac. So we still, Zubac is still valuable in non-Luka minutes. So he's out there in non-Luka minutes. Uh, minutes. Rajon Rondo plays, and of course, Nick Batum, we can expand his role. And he's sort of playing like, quote unquote, small ball five and things like that. Boris Diaw style. So what's happening with Beverly is something that I think is happening more and more recently in NBA playoff history, which is that guys, this is, this is in the old days, if you were like the eighth or ninth guy battling for that spot, you'd get to the postseason and a coach would say, who's going to be our eighth guy? We need a seven-man rotation. We need an eight-man rotation. It's just usually a matter of math. There just are only so many minutes to go around. You increase your minutes on your high-end players, and there's specific lineups that you kind of want to go to in a sense, right? Like you need a backup big, you need a backup wing, you need a backup point guard, something like that in the in the old world structure of playoff basketball. Today, you need players who are versatile and can provide value and not be exposed. And there's so much of this going on in the postseason where teams are being hyper-precise about attacking opponents who have weaknesses. You have a big defensive weakness, we're just going to put you in you know pick and roll you're vulnerable we're going to put you in pick and roll every single possession you're on the court and we've talked about this before so i won't belabor it but i mean this is kind of newish and we're seeing it where this isn't the ninth guy you know patrick beverly is not the ninth guy this is happening to players who start on some teams beverly started almost every single game he played this year and he's just been deemed useless in this series of course, on the other side of the basketball, Josh Richardson. Josh Richardson played almost 2,000 minutes. He averaged over 30 minutes a game, and he has essentially been shelved. Now, I don't know how specific that is to the Clippers outside of Dallas's strategy to continue to try to outscore them. You know, Dallas isn't, despite the fact that sometimes they have a lineup with Boban Marjanovic and Kristaps Porzingis all 14 feet, eight inches of them playing at the same time. The, the crazy thing is that's not a defensive lineup, you know, for the first 50, 60 years of the NBA, even the first almost 70 years of the NBA, if you saw a lineup with two seven foot three players out there, you would think, oh, this, they're, they're giving away a little offense for monster defense. And that's not what's happening here. And so Richardson because he's not a very good shooter, because you don't really need any kind of quote-unquote secondary or tertiary playmaking that he provides with everything going through Doncic, he becomes less valuable. His minutes uh, in the series weren't all that high to begin with. He was playing like 17, 20 minutes a game for the first couple games, and then you kind of get down to brass tacks in the last two games, and he's played six minutes and nine minutes. Now, could any of these players I've mentioned have big moments or big games, even in even in this series in Game 7, if they get back on the court, of course. But I think the point is more that if you get to another series, they may play. They may play and they may have a role. They may be more valuable in that situation. 
We saw this last year with the Lakers changing centers. You know, in one series, this center is very important. Dwight Howard, you play a lot. In another series, Dwight Howard, you're not really going to play in this series. The Lakers themselves had this this year, where Montrez Harrell averaged 23 minutes a game in the regular season, and in the playoffs, you are essentially not seeing him on the court at all. Well, I mean, I guess technically he, he played 60 minutes in the series, but... I'm thinking a lot about what this role specialization means for an upper middle class NBA player. If you, to me, if you are a sub all-star, we might even now think of a sub all-star as an upper class player, but uh, terminology aside, just if you are a sub all-star, this isn't going to happen to you, right? You're not going to be selectively benched. It, it, It would be very I wonder if we could come up with scenarios that would happen but I would off the top of my head imagine it would be incredibly rare for you to have that level of value and run into an opponent that would completely eliminate your value to the point where your coach took you off the floor so that means that you want high level role players I think to like in other words to be a high level role player you want to be more impervious to this you want to avoid having those weaknesses that take you off the court like is Danny Green ever being played off the court based on matchup I don't think so and I think to a degree you saw that with the with the Lakers in in um, the Phoenix series where like one of the guys who clearly wasn't going to have his minutes taken away was one of their best specialists or role players Contavious Caldwell Pope I think his minutes may have even technically gone up now, the, the real thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is how, what, what does this say about players who have really high-end strengths, uh, huge flaws, and maybe taking up too much oxygen in the room and that prevents them from being all-stars or in the case of Russell Westbrook, like even someone I put on my sub-all-star team. Uh, in fact, friend of the show at 22 Milto, he asked me recently, he said, uh, do I think as highly of Russell in 2019 when I talked about him as a as a all NBA kind of player ish, even though he wasn't efficient or even though uh, his shot was starting to fall off? I, I, I don't know. What Westbrook himself is tricky to me because he's the kind of player that the aging curve on the backside is very steep, meaning. He still wants to always play like Michael Jordan in terms of volume and primacy. Uh, Not literally like, I mean figuratively, like wants to have the ball, shoot a lot, score a lot, initiate a lot. And so as this happens, your athleticism starts to go. He can still pressure the rim and get to the rim, but it's not the same even that it was in 19. Some of that, you know, you pick up injuries as you age and and whatnot. And in his case, his shot has, has... largely deteriorated and so now you're seeing efficiency that goes from like ah that efficiency is not that great but we can talk about all the other things you do to whoa you're you're efficient you're like Antoine Walker your efficiency is is why are you shooting so many shots that's what your efficiency has come down to like you're bleeding value you may add a ton of value elsewhere but you're shooting enough shots or your free throw shooting is poor enough to 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 um compound the issue where okay this this is a lot of value that you're bleeding now in Westbrook's case he doesn't make up that value on defense he makes up that value and and his kind of value as a player 
is still about that playmaking, that pressure that he can put on the rim. So I've had a lot of people try to make the case for him that he's still an all-star, and I think they're making good cases. I just it's it's a complicated puzzle to me, partly because of what we just talked through with players having roles in the playoffs. So I'll really quickly talk through it, and then we can finish talking about LeBron and some of these other LA storylines from the first round of the playoffs. Actually, I have a question for you first before we do that. How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Still thinking? It's 10 tickles. I learned that in the Essential Compendium of Dad Jokes, which is available on Chronicle Books. I've talked about Chronicle Books recently. They make these really high-quality books. They make fantastic gifts for someone. If you, for instance, know someone who loves cooking like I do, and, and let's be honest, I mean, really, if I could get a cooking podcast going and make a living off of it, that's probably what I'd do, just sit up here and talk about uh, pastries and pies all day. And I don't even bake that much, but maybe I should. Pastries and pies are delicious. Anyway, um, they have incredible cookbooks like from Tartine, uh, Huckleberry, California institutions uh, of baking great, tasty goods and things like that. You can find these beautiful, distinct design forward books all over the world. And if you go to chroniclebooks.com and enter the promo code Thinking Basketball at checkout, you get 20% off. ChronicleBooks.com, Thinking Basketball promo code at checkout. You get that 20% off. That is a great way to support this show. And again, I just think a great source for gifting really cool books. So with Westbrook, I think the thing I overrated in 2019 was his passing, not his contextual passing. You know, I've been studying passing, and this has evolved in the last four or five years, My kind of the way I've thought about passing in basketball. It's, it's complex. It's nuanced. It's really interesting historically. And I think Westbrook's passing, which, of course, plugs into his playmaking, was really, really good and underrated in a sense in 2019 within that system. He had played that style with similar players for long enough that he was able to connect his strengths as a penetrator, basically, and all that downhill pressure he got on the rim with the guys next to him. Certain kickouts, certain lobs, little, you know, a few pick and roll reads if I need them, things like that. Chemistry with the players he had, an understanding of what Steven Adams was going to do. You put him in a different system and it wasn't quite as easy for him. And here's where it gets really interesting. When he isn't able to play that give me the ball and get out of the way style, then not only does the value go down, but you know he's not a phenomenal extra passer. Now he's doing something different and the reads and the angles aren't as obvious to him. And so he loses some of that value. And then so people have said, okay, well, Ben, but... I could see him playing, you know, we play four out, five out uh, kind of offense with him as the playmaking engine. And, you know, we'll just eat the loss of his scoring efficiency at this point. But on a good team with good players, he could be the guy stirring the drink, so to speak, because of of how much he can kind of disrupt and carve up defenses. Ah, This is where it gets really tricky, because on any good team, most of the time, you're probably going to have a better lead initiator. And if you don't have a better lead initiator and you have something that 
Um, it's a weird example because Steph Curry is clearly a much better offensive player. But if you said like, okay, let's go to Golden State and instead of Draymond Green being the initiator, could you have Curry and Clay and other motion kind of off-ball scores and let Westbrook run the action? Could you send him to the Clippers and people say, okay, well, the Clippers need a, a point guard or, a, or another playmaker, a ball handler next to Kawhi and Paul George, could you have someone like Westbrook do that? The problem is then they, then Westbrook starts to take a ton off the table for the other guys. And also think about what I'm saying. You're already on really, really, really good teams. So you wouldn't even necessarily want a guy out there who's potentially a defensive issue. Um, now, could he turn himself into a role player where he plays totally differently and his defense is good? Maybe, sure, I don't know. But that I don't think that's an all-star or really even a, a clear-cut sub-all-star. So that's where things get, get tricky. Anyway, talked about Westbrook uh, too much today. The, the sub-all-star I have regrets on now that I've seen the first round of the playoffs, the guy I would put in who I had on the cut line and wasn't sure what to do, to me is clearly DeAndre Ayton. Like, I saw exactly what I wanted to see from Aiton, physical toughness, um, playing you know playing within himself on offense with the decision making, rim running, uh, getting around the basket, hyper efficient on that end, and then really kind of solid paint protection defense with, within the system. Just yeah, really really enjoyed Aiton's series, uh, and kind of excited to see where he goes. Sometimes it's hard to think of a number one pick like that where you're no longer thinking of his ceiling as a top 10 or top 20 player. But man, if he can play like that, he's going to have a nice, valuable career. Let's finish in Los Angeles, the land of Hollywood, Tinseltown, and these days, the greatest NBA narratives money can buy. Um, Kawhi Leonard, someone should do a study on the behavioral reactions sort of in the basketball sphere, to Kawhi Leonard. A couple years ago, he was kind of a new Jordan. You know, people called him inevitable. And all of a sudden, between losing in the bubble and struggling, quote-unquote struggling, I mean, Kawhi now, after game six, has just had a number of monster games in this series and a huge, huge series offensively. And and his defense in game six on Luka was better than I thought in the first five games. So now the tide swings. So now now Kawhi, people are saying, well, Kawhi's clearly in the conversation for the best player in the world. Kawhi is um, playing like the best player in these playoffs. And just a few days ago, I saw a lot of people starting to talk about how Kawhi shouldn't be in that conversation and kind of mocking him and... and saying all these other, you know, he's not, a, he's not in the class of the great world-class MVPs that are always in the running for best player in the game, guys that end up in the all-time top, top 10 or top 20 when people make lists, people who, people who like making basketball lists like that. So the perception of him just yo-yoing so rapidly, and of course, if they lose to the Mavs in Game 7 and they bow out, or if they lose in the next round to Utah kind of what people will say versus if some of the role players on the Clippers and Paul George and other guys play better or someone else gets injured in front of him. Because remember, Toronto, not only was Toronto incredibly close to losing to Philadelphia in the second round, 
Toronto was incredibly close to losing to Milwaukee in the next round. And then Toronto, uh, and I love that team, great team, top to bottom. Not, you know, take nothing away from them, but probably unlikely that they win the championship if Golden State remains healthy on the other side of the bracket. And then maybe somewhat unfortunately at that point in time, then people kind of don't view them in a certain class. They don't view Kawhi uh, uh, as a certain class of player, although he has already won a championship in San Antonio, which is even weirder because when he won that championship, he wasn't close to a top 10 player in the world. That was the ultimate egalitarian system. That was the, the, the beautiful game Spurs of 2014 where, you know, who's their best player? People have asked who's their best player, and, and I kind of think, like, who cares? Um, <laughs> you know, maybe Popovich was their best player. Maybe Tony Parker. Tim Duncan, you could make an argument for his two-way impact. And even at that point in his career, Kawhi was very good and, and a huge part, you know, clearly one of their best players that year. But really an incredible kind of narrative history for Kawhi Leonard yo-yoing around based on these things. And I always say, like, when you have that level of instability, when a week ago you're saying this guy's not a top 10 player, not that people said that about Kawhi specifically, but if one week you're saying this guy's not a top 10 player, he's all washed up, he's completely overrated, and then the next week you're saying he's clearly the best player in the game, not only is then only does that suggest that your evaluation is unstable, but but what does that say about our narrative machine and where it's going and, and what he's bringing out in them? Also in Los Angeles, LeBron. I mean, LeBron James is 36 and a half years old. And clearly those teams that went deep in the bubble were affected by it. All, basically all of the teams except all of the teams except Jokic himself uh, seem to have been completely depleted by those deep playoff runs, even the Raptors with their grueling series against the Celtics and then having to move to Florida for the season with basically no offseason. It's clearly taken its toll on a lot of those teams. And the Lakers, to me, are no different. The thing that's interesting with the Lakers and LeBron is the ankle injury because he comes off the ankle injury and he doesn't have quite the same lift or burst. They're clearly moments where he looks a little more spry as his sort of north-south speed in the open floor looks pretty good. He tries to bully guys, but doesn't really have great lift. There is that moment where Crowder blocked him at the end of the game. And I'm not sure how much this is actually going to improve. Now, athletes these days, and particularly athletes like LeBron James, are better later in their 30s than ever before. So I don't want to say that, you know, I'm completely doubting him. But this feels like the actual first time where he's going to start legitimately sliding down the aging curve. In the se- Now, he may have a Kareem career where he's a top 10 player for a while still, but it feels like the days of him being in the running for that one spot are like, hey, this guy's either the first or second player in the league, clearly when we talk about best players. And the only time he's displaced is if someone like Steph Curry comes along magically. That feels like it's finally over. I do think he could look physically better with an offseason, like a legit offseason that he did not get to have at his age. But part of me also thinks the bubble and having that break right before the bubble and then getting all that time off and then getting a focus burst in the bubble 
helped him last year when he was 35. And next June, he's going to be 37 and a half. He's already logged 61,000 NBA minutes, which is really, really high based on his odometer. So again, it always feels weird to kind of doubt LeBron James, but there's a lot of evidence. Oh, I'm starting to sound like Max Kellerman with Brady going off the cliff. <laughs> there, let's just say there is, without saying he's going to go off a cliff, because I don't think that's going to happen at all. There is a lot of evidence that he he finally may not have that that same fastball that we've seen in years past. Remember to check out those great deals, hawthorne.co and chroniclebooks.com. That is a great way to support the show. You can also support at patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Over there, we have an active Discord community talking about NBA history and data and things like that. We, we have a historical database of stats going back to 1955. You'll get additional content and video access, thing, things of that nature. It's just the best way to directly support everything thinking basketball. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the show. Hope you are enjoying the playoffs as much as I am. And we will be back next week. Until then, wherever you are out there in the world listening, of course, I hope you are having a great day.